state at large, I'm Leonard Lopate. In his latest book, David Gesner tries to envision how the climate crisis will have transformed the planet by 2064. It's the year his daughter Hadley will reach the age he was at the time of his writing. In the book, A Traveler's Guide to the End of the World, he asks what the future of weather will be like, heat, storms, and fire. It's published by Tory House Press and brings David Gessner, a professor at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, and the author of a dozen books, including the New York Times bestseller, All the Wild That Remains, Leave It As It Is. It brings him to our show now. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hello. Thanks, Leonard, for having me. In the Early in the book, you include a cartoon titled Nature Writing by the Numbers, and I'm going to Read the, for the, uh, what the four panels are, are named. One, find something. Two, contemplate it. Three, express awe. Four, quote Thoreau. Five, describe threats. And six, end hopefully. But you say that your faith in number six is wavering. Are you losing hope? Um, I'm not losing hope so much as growing tired of the word itself. Um, I talk about the ways we write, the limited ways we write about climate. And one of the ways we do it is just what I described. We're required as if by law to end on an uptick of hope. And I call it the tropes of hope. There's the tropes of doom, of course, on the other hand. But one of the goals of the book was simply about language and storytelling and saying, we've got these cliche ways we write and talk about climate. And they're not really helping it permeate our discussions in our minds. You know, 3% of people think it's the most important topic we face. That's ridiculous, right? But it's partly because of the storytelling. We either go the end of, the doom of, or we do these little stories that, like I said, we quote Thoreau, and then we end on this little hopeful note. I'm not anti-hope. Uh, Samuel Johnson said, without hope, there is no endeavor. We need hope for energy. But I just think it gets a little too much play when it comes to the climate discussion. That is the word itself gets a little too much play. You say only 3%? Yeah, Gallup poll, 3%. Um, you know, you've got, uh, you've got basically 66% of people say they never discuss it with their family in the, you know, in the comfort of their home. So, as big a problem as it is, it seems to have been uh, eradicated or repressed in, in most of our lives. Is it possible? As a topic. <laughs> is it possible to predict uh, what how things will be like 41 years from now? Um, I got a lot of feedback. I think there, I agree with the, I said at some point in the book, we're all climate skeptics in one sense, at least. We know that there's an arrogance to thinking you know what will happen, right? Well, I mean, 41 years ago, part of it. 41 years so ago, the world was very different. Exactly we, what's good. I'm sorry, Go I've interrupted you. But 41 years ago, we didn't have electric cars, and also, and we weren't putting up windmills to create electricity. So. Th things might develop that we can't even imagine. Let's hope so. Though that is also, not to call you on it, but that's also one of the kind of tropes of the genre. 
is that we're going to be suddenly saved by our own inventions, which I certainly hope we will be, right? But on the other hand, it seems, you know, we also had 21 years ago predictions that um, uh, predictions that have more or less come true. Uh, we've had, you know, we've had the heat that was suggested. We've had the desertification. We've had the storms. So there has to be a little faith, despite our skepticism, in what has been predicted, because what is predicted has happened. So I don't want to get arrogant and say this will happen, but it's certainly a possibility. And, and I'm all for electric cars and uh, alternative ways, but uh, we've got a much bigger problem than something that those things can, can solve at the moment. You report that climate change has damaged places where you've lived and traveled to. Hurricanes in North Carolina, fires in Colorado, uh, Norfolk, Virginia, and southern Louisiana. How bad has the damage been? Well, it's been interesting. Um, I'm a New Englander by birth, and I took a job down here 20 years ago, not thinking that I would be on the front lines of hurricanes. Uh, my daughter at the time was three months old, and we had our first storm after two months in the south. And we've been hit by Florence, where basically our city, Wilmington, North Carolina, was turned into a third world uh, city, uh, not blocked off from the world. Uh, my daughter, when people say to me, well, things aren't that bad, I always say, look at my daughter's high school years. First year, freshman year is Florence. Her high school becomes uh, you know, a hospital uh, and a, a rehab center for three weeks. Spring term that year is her one good term during her, her years. Hurricane Ida comes the next fall and then we get COVID and she's doing everything from home. So it's been made a really very real impact on her and my life. In the meantime, we spend most of our summers out west where the fire seasons certainly echo our hurricane seasons. And there's a sense of trepidation in both places as the seasons roll around. Um, you know, on the one hand, you worry your houses are going to turn into driftwood. On the other, they're kindling. So it's, it's, it's the places where I live and live in between have had very real impacts. So it's mostly the South and the West? Well, I mean, if you had to pick a poster child, I would say the desert Southwest would inch out the hurricane coast, um, you know, in terms of the, the biggest places. But the, the city that you live in, uh, Sandy was kind of a warning shot. And strangely enough, when they talk about the three most dangerous cities in the U.S. in terms of hurricanes, You've got New Orleans, Miami, and New York, not due to the probability in New York, but, but but due to the potential damage if it wasn't a, you know, if it was a full-on hurricane hitting New York, where the bridges would be a problem getting off, and where the only place to really evacuate would be up. You uh, actually in end your book in New York City. Uh uh, New yes. York, uh, we are aware of the fact that there's been a number of record-setting temperatures this spring, but we've had less spring and snow than usual this year. But when they look at the past, haven't we had similar situations over the years? Yes, we, we have. You know, there's cycles. For instance, I just came back from driving through Colorado 
where I was happy to be dead wrong in the fact that there was three feet of snow in the town of Leadville as I drove through or the mountains near Leadville. And there are always fluctuations and there's always going to be fluctuations. On the other hand, big picture, take the West. We've had 20 years of historic drought that according to the tree rings are like no drought there's ever been recorded in the, in the American Southwest. So the big picture has remained pretty consistent but of course, there are small fluctuations within. I think, you know, one interesting thing about Sandy is it was the first time the Weather Channel started mentioning the words climate change or global warming. Huh. And I think it's going to take um, the media center I'm talking to right now. I, I'm not asking for you guys to get hit, but if it did, maybe that would do a little bit of waking up. And I think that's the main thing. One of the main things my book is about is saying, wake up. Let's be at least aware of this. I know it's a hard thing to be aware of. It's off in the future, and it's this thing that human beings' brains aren't really built to to handle. But I want it to. I want people to at least acknowledge that this thing is here. That we're we're in the midst of it already. But we see these stories on on the news. Five recent hurricanes have caused serious damage to towns, homes, and oil rigs, and a lot of wildlife. Although. You report that vultures seem to be thriving. Well, I think that the interesting thing is the way they're reported is a short-term emergency, which we can get our heads around. And then, for instance, in my town, all of a sudden, the Wilmington Strong signs come up and we talk about rebuilding. Often we talk about rebuilding, say, in the foothills in the west or on the outer banks in the east, and as my friend Orrin Pilkey, the coastal geologist from Duke, likes to say, you can't blame the train if you rebuild on the train tracks. So a lot of the rebuilding is in places where, that are already precarious, but are more so after being uh, hit once. So I think there are, you know, and, and believe me, I'm not a full-on, you know, climate advocate I'm for messiness and complication and some hypocrisy. And I've rebuilt. I live in a in a floodplain. So I'm not doing it from a tisk tisk, you're wrong attitude. I'm trying to write about this in a way the, the way you would in a novel about it, right? Where there aren't necessarily bullet points at the end, where we're trying to just acknowledge it as part of, of our of our lives. Well, those hurricanes, as I mentioned, also uh, destroyed or caused serious damage to oil rigs. Those uh, rigs ha have been a major source of U.S. oil production, 20 percent. But since oil is part of the problem, isn't that a good thing on some level? It would be if it didn't despoil the seas around it. Uh, Louisiana, where I traveled during the book, being a prime example, where you have— um, the storm coming through and taking out basically an, a town that's an oil refinery, and and of course you you get as you know you get oil dumped into the Gulf, not to the extent it was during the BP spill, but but you know quite quite seriously, and so I don't know that it's a good thing, um, even though it's kind of nature's form of eco-terrorism, I guess. Hasn't it been widely reported that uh, that area uh, will be underwater within a century? 
Yes. Um, in fact, one of my kind of characters in the book is Ryan Lambert, who was the star of a book I wrote years ago called The Tarball Chronicles after the BP oil spill. And Ryan, who's known that, knows that land like almost nobody else, he's a hunter and fisherman, and whose politics are quite to the right of mine, um, and teases me about it. When I was down there during the spill, he called Obama, called Obama my president. You know, and we had a good relationship, but it was, it was, uh, there was some teasing going on. He okay. has made it his per personal mission to regrow land down there, and the way he's done it on his own, but uh, the, to, to their credit, the state has now embraced it, is redirecting the Mississippi and letting the waters of the Mississippi and the sediment regrow land in a place where they're losing land you know, at a historic rate. And he's had some success with that. And I would say the successes and the hopeful moments in my book almost all revolve around nature and its resilience. You know, the fact that there are people who are still in touch with the elemental life of wind, water, fire in a good way not in the way of you know things burning down and things flooding. And Ryan certainly is an example of, of that, of somebody kind of fighting back in a small way, but in an important way. Well, he teased you for being a liberal. So does he see concern about the environment as a political issue on some level? Yeah, he does. Um, in fact, I, my joke was that the ground is our only common ground, or the ground or the water, in that you know, he was very adamant and concerned during the BP oil spill and very down on, on BP. And it was because of what it did to the oysters, what it did to all the other shellfish, what it did to the fish. And he's the same with, with climate. Now, he might not call it what I call it, but he sees the results. And so I think that's one of the things that I've discovered traveling around the country, that it's not quite as... Um, acrimonious as Fox versus MSNBC, that there's more overlap, particularly when it comes to fighting for one's place and places that, you know, there's a people who love the land could well, you know, hunters love the land. You know, he's a, he's a big duck hunter and fisherman and people who love the land, sometimes that can transcend the more obvious political differences. Well, coastal areas have been hard very hard hit. My guest is David Yesner, whose latest book is A Traveler's Guide to the End of the World, Tales of Fire, Wind, and Water, published by Tory House Press. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and uh, streaming live at WBAI.org. In Wilmington, North Carolina, where you live, didn't the Kate Hatteras Lighthouse have to be relocated further inland? Or uh, and our people. I did, really and it was a great political stink because, you know, a lot of the politicians felt this was very unmanly that will that it would retreat from the sea. And I mentioned my friend Warren Pilkey. He's kind of a controversial figure where we live because he's long said we need a retreat from the sea. We don't need to build because uh, this because the beaches themselves are built by the storms. They organically move with the storms. The storms overwash them and rebuild on the backside. So he pushed for, you know, pushing the lighthouse back and there was a great uproar. In the end, when it was done, uh, he rode the little train that moved the, 
lighthouse itself. So um, Oren is, was and is a great scientist, but what he's really done is start to define himself as a scientific advocate. Um, he's a he's climate kind of activist. Bullhorn. He's a geoscientist and a climate activist. He's kind of a bullhorn for the rest of us, you know. And he said, quote, what we are experiencing along with the rising sea is a tsunami of anti-intellectualism. Yeah, and that was before the last few years that he said that. (laughs) So, you know, he, um, but, you know, I don't, it's interesting because my daughter, who's a big part of the book, obviously, and is a freshman at NYU, um, she seems to have the activist gene that I lack. You know, she, I, I'm a writer. I'm trying to make art out of this. You know, what to make of the end of the world is my driving question. But she's a she's more of a fighter. She's more like Oren, and Oren will say things like that and and you know rile people up, but he'll keep pushing. You know, he's he's in his mid 80s now, but he hasn't slowed down in terms of fighting. And one of his main fights is the way we live at the coast. And the way we live at the coast, he thinks, should be like kind of Muhammad Ali doing a rope-a-dope and letting it, letting it falling backward. And what, the way we do is we draw a line in the sand. And what ends up happening is we destroy the beaches that we're there to see in the first place. So Oren's, Oren fights in a way. I record Oren fighting, but I don't fight quite like Oren does. Maybe when I grow up, I will, if I grow up. And you quote him as saying, science is at a new low in the public's view. I think the coal and oil companies aided by politicians have done fundamental damage to science in this country. Yeah. I mean, what do you think? I think so. And that was, again, that was... I don't think I'm just a talk show host. (laughs) I let my guests think. Well, Well, I think the damage has continued, obviously, during COVID and afterward and and uh you know his he's a battering ram he keeps telling it like it is and uh you know he i don't understand why they don't have him on msnbc and cnn and even fox because he's he's so good at this stuff but i do feel like that's true i mean part of the part of the inability to get the story across is just that that we don't trust the science but part of it is on the our backs the storytellers i feel like we haven't done a good enough job telling the story. And part of the story for me is the messiness of the story. You know, finding finding people who disagree with you and telling their story too, having a sense of humor about it, having a kind of uh, ability to be in uncertainties. Um, I don't think the literature about climate has matured and grown up, and I think it needs to. There are some examples, uh, the Ministry for the Future, um, Kim Robinson is a great book, and you have uh, Gosh writing, and um, you know you have you have some complex literature, but a whole lot of it reads to be like kind of book reports or these kind of Jeremiah uh, railing against our moral flaws and you know doom and gloom. So I think there needs to be something more subtle and interesting, and more something that people would read and take in. Not necessarily needing to rush out and you know buy an electric car the next day, but just to let it, the story become part of our lives. So is that why so many people, especially so many in positions of power, are not listening? Is it a matter of them finding it too depressing? Yeah, I think it's 
both those things and, and other too things. Com complex. They're, I think it's both those things and other things. It's like it's natural to kind of pull yourself into kind of a mental fetal position when faced with something so overwhelming and so something you're so incapable of fighting back against. So I do feel like repression. I mean, think of what we repress normally. Part of the book I write about my mom's dying and our own deaths. We don't like to think about that. And this is a subject that lends itself to repressing. Because our problems today, me doing this interview right now, is more pressing to me than the ice cap melting 20 years from now. So how do we make it? How do we make this abstract, off-in-the-distance-seeming problem immediate? And my way of trying to do that is trying to imagine my daughter's future, you know, and, uh, you know, just what is she going to be facing? Certainly in North Carolina, it's an acceleration of what we've already seen and houses falling into the sea, which we see already. In the West, increased fires, aridity, uh, the, you know, the death of trees. Um, so we have these things that sound horrible, and I understand we want to recoil from them, but to try to think and imagine of our children or our children's children, maybe, maybe, I, I, I'm a cynic in some ways, is a way to make them come alive a little for us. How much of this is just a matter of uh, personal wealth, for example? Are members of Congress from states where coal and oil are major industries not listening simply because they depend on financial support from people in those industries. And I'm not I'm talking not just about Republicans. We have Democrats like Joe Manchin as well. Completely. Yeah. And I think that there is an aspect to it. And I just said I'm not going to get moral and start to rail against things. But now I'm going to get can. moral and start to rail a little. Because... I feel like given the perspective of 50 years from now, the people doing this for their gain and selfishness are going to be regarded the way we regard people throughout history of doing just the same thing. This is a deeply immoral act to not acknowledge that this thing is coming toward us and there are things we can do about it. So they're thinking short term instead of long term. Yeah, they're thinking short term, but they're also, I mean, we know, we all know this. It's a, it's a greedy bunch in there and they're, you know, they're, they're getting what they can and they're, how often does a, a true moral issue come to come, you know, the forefront unless it happens to be the flavor of the day moral issue. And this certainly isn't, this is the anti flavor of the day. It's the issue nobody really wants to talk about. And even when they do do some good things, you mentioned electric cars and renewable energy, they're not facing it nearly enough. They're not acknowledging that the house is burning. Well, it's not just politicians, members of Congress and such. In a recent ruling, the U.S. Supreme Court limited the reach of the Clean Water Act by concluding that the act precludes the Environmental Protection Agency from regulating discharges of pollution into many wetlands. Yeah, I mean, we're we're up against it. And I don't know, honestly, one of the things I say in the book is each climate disaster is, a, is also a personal story. Like I talked to some of the victims of the Paradise Fire, where a new fire, the Dixie Fire, was coming through when I was talking to them. And... 
those people feel it acutely, right? But it's not felt, it doesn't resonate uh, apparently with uh, the judicial uh, system, with, uh, with our Congress, uh, to some degree with our president, though I think if he'd gotten his initial um, package passed before it had to be watered down, we would have made a strong step in the right direction. Um, also, obviously, as I say early in the book, I'm mainly, these are these uh, vignettes and anecdotes and scenes are from the year and a half after COVID when I started to travel again, starting in Washington, D.C., but then moving um, out west and to Louisiana and back to my home in North Carolina. But I do not travel outside the boundaries of the United States where some of the worst effects of the problem are being felt and where, you know, we can see on a larger scale how this is going to play out. And of course, as most people know, whereas we are the great wasters and you know are responsible for 25 percent of the carbon emissions, uh, we're not going to get the very worst of it, which is another reason Congress is able to happily put blinders on. I'm not saying they should. Um, again, uh, the act of imagination is not one that we see going on a lot among our legislators. Do you With know, some exceptions. Do you know the details? I quote uh, Jamie Raskin in the book, and I put him in the hmm. exception category. Are there, How many others are there? Is there, are there more? Three. Are there more there are three. for or against? Um, you know, probably if you if you had. I mean, it would probably be straight party line, right? So you could probably get a strong climate package through if you had both the House and Senate, but, uh, and that being, if Biden had both the House and Senate, but he doesn't. Without Joe Manchin. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I know that the Supreme Court ruling occurred after your book was published, but do you know any of the details of that? about uh, regulating discharges of pollution into many wetlands? Well, I don't. And one of the themes of my book is trying to admit my own ignorance. So I'm going to do that right now. Because there's just so many different details to this story or? Um, yeah, and also. Because things aren't being reported. I mean, I come to it as a writer. And I try to do my homework and I interview people and do research. Hmm. But really, my task and my responsibility is to turn it into a story. And um, and so there are, you know, um, I'm a huge fan of Bill McKibben's. And I've, during, while I've been doing these interviews, I wish he'd been on them with me to give very accurate, up-to-date interviews about this environmental state of things. I can't provide that. I'm sorry. But I can provide some good sentences now and then. What's the sense you get of the general public feeling when you interview these different people, people who have no power but, you know, are just like you and me? I would say that I get a sense that so many people, and granted, you mentioned before, I was mainly traveling in the south along the coasts in Louisiana out west and DC during kind of the lockdown. Uh, but I get a sense that one, 
climate change is not something vague and off in the future. It's here. We're, we're in the midst of, of, of crises. And they're not just, oh, this hurricane hit or this fire hit, particularly in the West, where you see, where it's always been a fragile environment, famous for catastrophic big events. And now you see with the drought, and then with the floods that follow the drought, um, a real sense of vulnerability. So that's one. But the number two is the scary one, a sense of disconnect between what just happened to my house or my, uh, I had a, a friend who lost all his files and studies and photos in, in a Quonset hut in, uh, in above Moab, Utah, in Pack Creek. And, uh, and, you know, people losing these things and then a certain disconnect between that and the larger problem. Um, because it's natural, you know, it matters more to me in the moment that you know, my house is on fire than it does that the world is on fire. Didn't the national survey in 2019 conclude that around 63% of Americans say they rarely or never discuss global warming with family and friends? It did. Um, I mean, I, I, I guess things. you and I are among the, uh, the four that, four out of 10 who do talk about these things, but... So At when you ask other are. people, they simply say, well, I never really think about it or talk about it. Exactly. And that's that's really one of the core things in the book um, is the sense that we have ignored it. I have a, a chapter called Beneath the Ice, during which I go up to the source of the Colorado River. You know, 40 million people in the West depend on the Colorado for their drinking water. And I hike up to it, and it's a very non-snowy winter. In fact, it was the latest uh, front-range Denver snowfall um, in history, the latest first snow. So I hike in without snowshoes to the source up in the mountains, and I stand kind of straddling the water. And I'm thinking, my God, this is amazing. Nature is the source of so much here. But it also started to flow beneath the ice. And I thought, that's the metaphor, really. It's beneath the ice that we, we've repressed so much of this and we don't think about it and talk about it. I mean, I'm kind of lucky in a way and probably wouldn't have written the book, but I have a daughter who's one of the exceptions to the rule and, and gave speeches in front of City Hall in Wilmington, our hometown, and was a, was a, uh, ran an organization called Sunrise, which was the kind of uh, high school version of Bill McKibben's organization. And... But even she, during COVID, started to retract and recoil a little bit. And she said to me, doom is normal. I'm just getting used to this. And you know, and, and she wanted to be a politician, but now she's studying film at NYU. Um, she's, you know, I can see her just saying this problem is too much. And I'm even she's pulling away a little bit. But we do talk about it. And we've been doing a series of talks um, that, that try to focus on kids her age, you know, there was the Lancet Medical Journal did a study of 10,000 kids between 16 and 25 from 20 different countries. And the majority of the kids reported regular climate anxiety, that that was part of their, their psychological lives. And so to me, we might not talk about it, but it's there. And particularly in the younger generation, it's a part of their worldview. Well, let's return to this in just a moment. 
But right now it's important for me to inform our audience that this is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Lord, it's gonna rain. It's gonna rain. You better get ready and bear this in mind. God showed no, showed him the rainbow sign. He said it won't be water, but fire next time. Listen, we're back in. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with David Gesner. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book. A Traveler's Guide to the End of the World, uh, with the subtitle Tales of Fire, Wind, and Water. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we will be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number 2, WBAI.org, or 212 212- Two zero nine twenty nine fifty, But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, and we thank you very much. And return to David Gessner. Oh, the book we are discussing, his latest, A Traveler's Guide to the End of the World, Tales of Fire, Wind, and Water, from Torrey House Press. He's a professor at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, and he's been an award-winning contributor to the New York Times Magazine, Sierra Audubon, Orion, many other publications. He's also published a number of books. Um, we were talking about young people. I'm an old guy. So on one level, all of this is, the worst is going to happen after I'm gone. But what about the next generation and the generation after that? Well, I'm, I'm an they, old guy. Are they showing so- more concern? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. When people write about the environment and when people talk about the environment, starting with the Native American tradition, uh, but also in the Teddy Roosevelt tradition, where you have him standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon saying, leave it as it is, and evoking uh, the need to save it for our children's children. This is, I mentioned the tropes of the genre. This is one of the tropes, but it's really true. It's the first, that's become kind of cliche to think in those terms, but to really think about it beyond our lives, beyond ourselves. The the first time I came on this show was for a book called, or your show was uh, Return of the Osprey. And for me, I hadn't been a birder growing up, but the thing that birds unlocked in me was a way to think beyond myself to think beyond the human, to get out of myself. And I think that's what, that's an impossible task. I understand and we can only do it briefly, but that's in a way what I'm asking in this book too, is to get out of our own lives and our own heads, however briefly, and imagine the life of the planet, of the animals, but also of our children in the future. And they certainly do have cause to worry and they certainly do worry. So, just on a level, not of law, not of reform, but of empathy. Um, That was a central mission for me to try to think, okay, 
Hadley's going to be 60 in 2062. Um, what is the world going to be like? And as you know, I enlisted scientists. The very first one to get back to me was Caltech's Paul Weinberg, or Wenberg, who um, I gave a creative writing assignment to. It was kind of fun to give these creative writing hmm. assignments to scientists. And he said, in that year, when your, sister, when your daughter is 60, the skies will be like they were in 1991 when Mount Pinatubo blew. And at least on the West Coast, you had deep purples and reds and sunsets. Mm. And the air was thick with you know particulates, right? But he also added at the end of the It's very summer, pretty, which is sad. It's very pretty, yes. You know, those pollution sunsets are beautiful, right? But he also added that there would be you know, these, like you mentioned at the beginning, these scientific saves that they would start to do that would level things out. So he tried to kind of bring hope into the picture too. But even a book like um, Robinson's Ministry for the Future, which is a cli-fi book, climate fiction, um, gives us a pretty dismal picture of where the next 40 years are going, but tries to do that like how do we start solving things? And and the interesting thing in that book for me is we solve things in a lot of different ways. The the scientists come up with the new ideas. The the lawmakers pass the laws. Uh, the monkey wrenchers monkey wrench. There's a little eco terrorism involved, and the writers write. And every you know in in that book, there start to be glimmers of light at the end. Um, whether that's going to play out or not, I have no idea. But um, but I think the kids have every reason to to be anxious about where we're heading. And, and I we, don't, you know, people can say when when we were growing up, you know, you hid under the desk in fear of the bomb, hmm. and that passed. Of course, it hasn't passed, but it passed. But I think this is a more, you know, a, a more pervasive like sense a sense that there's no avoiding it, and that's what causes so much anxiety among you know younger generations. So are we seeing a growing activism among younger people? Or are there uh, groups forming on our un in our colleges and universities? Um, I have, um, but maybe it's the circles I'm in. Uh, you know, I've watched Hadley speaking up and I've watched, um, I've watched some younger activists, but as we said, and we've been saying, it doesn't seem to be making much of a dent in the larger consciousness of the country and, and the world. So I'm, you know, I'm holding on to the right to be somewhat pessimistic at the moment. Your focus in this book is on the United States. What about other countries around the world? Well, you know, I mentioned the Colorado River extrapolate to the Ganges, extrapolate to, you know, other river systems and where other deltas that are sinking faster than Louisiana, for instance. So, of course, it's going to be more acute in just the same sort of places that I discussed here. In the United States, I'm talking about the dry southwest and the Atlantic coast. Well, coastal communities, poor coastal communities, Historically, coastal communities haven't been where you go and buy a, you know, a fancy house. They've been places where things can be destroyed and uh, you know, shacks that are- Well, know, we did a recent so show you, on how uh, 
things are sinking and people are being forced to move inland because the land is disappearing. Right. And the people who move inland have few resources and are coming up against the people who already are inland, right? So you have you have potential for war over resources, over water, over um, air. You know, so you, you've got this going on worldwide. And I actually think the next project I'm going to do is take my show beyond the borders of, of this country and, and research exactly what you're talking about. Uh, because the United States, uh, talk about thinking beyond yourself, we're not the world, obviously. And air knows no borders. There are wildlife currently raging in Canada, and people in this country are having to deal with what's come out of them. Yeah, I mean, I'm heading to Boulder, Colorado. It looks like a clear day there today, but the last week has been, you know, smoke covering everything. And when I did my book, I was traveling through the American West and smoke from the California fires, from the Pacific Northwest fires. You had seafood boiling alive or, or shellfish boiling alive in the Pacific Northwest. So you had all this going on. And like you say, it knows no borders, right? I just hiked from uh, up the Arizona Trail a month ago. I had a friend who's writing a book on jaguars, and we started at two miles north of the wall. And to see the wall there blocking animal migration uh, was just really intense. The idea that we're, we're, we can separate ourselves off from something. And of course, in the natural world, you can't do that, whether it's air or wind. And certainly the smoke has announced itself throughout the West. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is David Gessner. His latest book, A Traveler's Guide to the End of the World, Tales of Fire, Wind, and Water from Tory House Press. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Just 10 days ago, on March 20th, the UN released its latest intergovernmental panel on climate change report. Uh, it said that it's urgent to take more ambitious action, and I'm quoting, it shows that if we act now, we can still secure a livable, sustainable future for all. So what what do they have in mind? What would it take, what would we have to do now to turn things around? Well, I mentioned Bill McKibben earlier, and he had a great piece in The New Yorker a year or so ago. He also gives you a nice blurb on your cover. Yeah, that was very nice of him. He to called do. this book an act um, of He's been a great supporter, strangely. Love and, con and courage. Uh, and he was my editor-in-chief back in college when I was the political cartoonist. And I got in a couple of controversies then, and he supported me then, and he's continued to be a great supporter. Um, but his basically thing, his basic three-word answer was stop burning things. That the um, that where we are right now with the advancing uh, electric car, uh, uh, renewable energy, technology, we're getting to the point where it's better and cheaper. And we keep claiming it isn't, but it is. And simply keeping things in the ground, you know, not not burning. Very simplistic answer, but in the end, probably the answer in terms of what must we do. The interesting thing about the IPCC report is that generally the people I talk to, the scientists, think 
as dire a warning as it is that it's conservative. Um, and that's because you have to get all these different scientists to agree. The other interesting thing to me is if you go back and look at the reports um, and what was warned uh, going back, you know, 20 years, you you see we've hit all the marks. So there's a reliability to the predictions so far. The temperature has been rising. The seas have been rising. The things that they predicted have been happening. So, you know, maybe we shouldn't be so skeptical about whether we'll hit the next marks because we in all likelihood will. Are some countries doing a better job than others? Yeah, um, but you know we have, we have. I mean, Germany is an example. Iceland, where you know we have, we always have that built-in excuse. Yes, but we're larger, and you know we've got this kind of multifarious personal personality and going each way. But the truth is, um, we're responsible. You know, there has to be. Let's imagine in our fantasy life that some idealistic uh, climate concerned uh, president came into office and had the ability to move things through. Part of what would have to be, um, you know, part of that would have to be reaching out help to the countries that have become more intensely affected because of our actions, because of the because of what we've spewed into the air. Um, so. You know, that's idealistic. I understand it's not probably not going to happen the way things are going. But we, as a country, are responsible for, for a good deal of, of what the world is suffering from. You write with some humor. Uh, is that important? <laughs> you don't want to depress yeah, people totally? Yeah, I think it totally? is, particularly in the shrill, screaming back and forth environment we find ourselves in. Uh, my tradition isn't science writing or environmental writing. I'm a, I'm a Montaigne fan back in the 1500s. And Montaigne, uh, the first essayist, was reasonable, had an awareness of his own flaws and hypocrisies, and looked at life with kind of a generous humor. Um, he, was in, you know, he was in the middle of the French Civil Wars and he kept the doors open to, to his home uh, and he responded to this kind of shrill uh, anger with openness. And not that I'm claiming to be a modern Montaigne, but he's a model and it, it's a goal to kind of be able to be amidst all this screaming and be reasonable, but also be able to make a joke every now and then. Hey, you so, said that one yes. of your goals in writing this book was to discuss climate change in a new, more personal way. Are most of the discussions about this important matter often a bit too too technical? Yeah, I think that's right. I think that, you know, as I said, sitting in the diner in paradise and listening to a gentleman who politically I probably was not on the same page with in some things, but listening to him describe having lost his home and then having that day, two years after the fire, um, had to evacuate his new home and hearing him talk poignantly, as it turns out, one of the things he bemoaned and, uh, you know, was losing his guns during the first fire. He kept them in his safe, and somehow they'd heated up and gone, gone off, and um, and you know. But just talking to him, 
and listening to hear how he was dealing with it was was a story to me more powerful than hearing a lot of numbers and statistics. So yeah, I think that's where hopefully as the as the literature about climate matures, hopefully we're going to go more towards story and the personal and not as much toward spewing stats. So yeah, I agree with that. And that's one of the goals of your book here? I think so. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm like any other author. I'm a megalomaniac and I think that I've done something important, but I'm aware that, um, you know, I, I'm probably deluding myself a little, but what I've tried to do is tell the story in a new way. Uh, talk about climate. And as I say at the beginning, I say, you know, I'm your tour guide. Let me take you on a tour of the end of the world. And I say, one of the things that might happen, despite all the doom and gloom, is we might have some fun because we're traveling. We're traveling to beautiful places. A lot of the places that this is happening are spectacular places. They're the Outer Banks with the Atlantic right there. They're the Rockies. They're the deserts of the Southwest. And for me, and, you know, I say I'm against hope, but one hope I have against hope, because it probably won't come true, is that humans can start to become a little more humble and a little bit more aware that we're just animals in a habitat and we're despoiling our habitat. And so for me, those primal moments of being in these beautiful places and talking with these people is as important as anything. You know, that's, that's why I do it. And uh, that's where at least my stories come from. We have just a couple of minutes left. Anything else you want to add? I guess what I would add is, you know, that that my last chapter is me dropping Hadley off last fall in New York City, hmm. well aware of the dangers of New York City. One interesting, dangerous thing if it gets, gets hit by a storm is not just the low sea level, especially around Ground Zero in lower Manhattan, but the fact that it, the gridded streets usher in waters, much like they do on the Outer Banks where there are kind of these gridded streets. So I was aware of the doom and gloom, but boy, was I happy dropping her off there where she got to experience, you know, a very warm but winter in New York and, and, and she loved it there. So I, I guess what I would say is we can have these two things in mind at once. Um, in that chapter, I begin by saying, I'm at my mother, mother-in-law's house um, in Jersey, and I say, I have this feeling I left something behind when we left the city. And then I go, oh, yeah, it was my daughter. <laughs> so she's out there in the wild world on her own, and the world she faces is a changed world from the world I faced when I was in college in 1979, right? So to me, the interesting thing is it, you can be aware of these dangers, but you also have your life. And if there were a way that we could just acknowledge that this is part of our lives now, that would be an okay first step. You know, you, you can buy an electric car, you can uh, power your house by solar, but a good first step would just to start to say, hey, this is the reality. This is not, um, we're, we're, not we're not faking it here. Here's, the, here's what the, where the world is now. And even though we live in New York and are probably less likely to be hit by a tornado, we should be just as concerned because there are all sorts of things that are going to happen in the future here as well. 
Um, yeah, I mean, it's an island after all, and islands are vulnerable. Well, a couple of islands. Uh, my great thanks to my guest, David Gesner, G-E-S-S-N-E-R. His latest book, A Traveler's Guide to the End of the World, Tales of Fire, Wind, and Water from Tory House Press. Uh, as I said, he's a professor at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, and uh, the author of numerous books and uh, an award-winning contributor to many magazines. Thank you again for being on our show. Thank you. It's great to be back. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is lendedlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI during a really rough time for us. Where we are, our finances are in deep trouble, and we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by giving us a call at 212-209-2950 or going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give in the number 2 WBAI.org. We, are, we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content. And as I said, mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of London Lopez at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, A Traveler's Guide to the End of the World by David Gessner. So why not make that call right now, 212-209-2950. Go online to, to give to WBAI.org. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, for $10, $15, $20, $25 a month, whatever is comfortable for you. And we'll say thank you with a WBAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 or more. It allows us to plan for the future, but either way, I hope you'll do that right now because BAI is the only station on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-supported. And... Your contribution is tax-deductible. We hope that you'll join us again tomorrow, and my guest will be Jean Felzer, discussing her new book, California, A, Sly, A Slave State. We'll see you then. Mm-hmm.